Howdy and hello, everyone. This is Volts for January 20th, 2023 on writing an ambitious and terrifyingly realistic novel about climate change. I'm your host, David Roberts. In 2018, author Stephen Markley won near-universal critical praise with his debut novel, Ohio, a tight set piece that takes place over the course of a single night as four high school classmates reunite at a diner in their northeastern Ohio hometown. Four characters and one night is pretty much the opposite of Markley's sprawling new novel, The Deluge, which tracks dozens of characters over the course of decades, from the 2010s out past 2040. Everyone from climate activists to scientists to political operatives, as they suffer the effects of climate change, there are some quasi-biblical disasters, and struggle to marshal the political will to address it. The novel crucially involves climate policy, reactionary backlashes, and direct activism, among many other topics of great interest to the Volts audience. On Thursday, January 12th, at Seattle's Third Place Books, I was lucky enough to talk to Markley about the genesis of the novel, some of its major themes, and the difficulties he faced in writing it. The crew at Third Place was kind enough to record the event, so I'm happy to bring it to you today as an episode of Volts. Please enjoy, and while you are at it, do the smart thing and buy copies of The Deluge for all the readers in your life. Please join me in welcoming Stephen Markley and David Roberts to Third Place Books. Where to begin? I'm just going to jump right in asking Stephen questions because I have nothing interesting to say. So my first question had to do with, um, I've been writing nonfiction my whole life and have thought periodically about writing fiction like every nonfiction author <laughs> does and even took a while one summer or, or one time when I had some time off to sort of sit and stare at the screen for a while and think about doing it. I had kind of a plot for a near future quasi sci-fi thing. And there are tons and tons of reasons why I very quickly concluded that I was not suited to writing fiction. But one of them was the one I still think about, which is just, what does the near future look like? And the more I thought about that, the more I thought, boy, I have no idea at all <laughs> what the near future looks like. I mean, I guess you could say that at any time in history, but it seems like particularly now, there's just so much crazy shit going on. It's really like, how's it all going to interact and play out? And I just found myself completely daunted and shut down by that problem. So here you are. <laughs> you you right. have decided to start a novel basically two years in the past and then literally just detail what happens, not in some fictional world or some far off world, what happens in this world among these people in this country over the next two, four, six, ten years in detail. And that just strikes me as, just like, fictionally speaking, the highest conceivable level of difficulty <laughs> that you could <laughs> set yourself 
why do that <laughs> in in the book that you know we talked a little bit beforehand you were thinking about even before yeah. ohio it just seems like the hardest thing you could do why not write a easier <laughs> a couple of easy books to <laughs> to start with yeah I, I it all breezed by it all went super easy and nothing <laughs> oh, yeah. uh nothing surprised me yeah it just like came pouring out <laughs> with no uh yeah nothing got in the way historically or politically that made uh good, good, good. yeah um no it's uh it was an incredibly high degree of difficulty for the reasons you said and all the problems of writing a thousand page novel Combined with the problems of it has to feel absolutely realistic at the moment of its publication. It has to feel as if it's our world sliding into this this next world, right? At dinner, we were talking. I started the book in 2010, uh, roughly the same time as Ohio. Had to set it aside when Ohio was published uh, and then came back to it in 2017. So in that time, I don't know if you guys heard, a game show host actually got elected president. Uh, and so the, the terrifying presidential character i was returning to was suddenly really unrealistic in his bombasticness because we like the real thing was i know there's a relatively muted fascist president in your (laughs) book and written that looking at it you know from our present vantage point i mean look it was uh a mind-blowing project for me because i had to keep paying attention to every little detail of of what was happening in climate technology politics you know our society um, and unfortunately, I, you know, I had found the right veins clearly just in terms of how our politics were developing. And that just felt like it accelerated so quickly. And then with climate policy, I think that was another sort of murky issue. You've talked about on your podcast before where there was this dead period after Waxman Markey failed in the Obama administration where I, it felt like everybody was throwing up their hands. And I think that was a tough place to be to like thinking about the future of where policy would head or, or, or how it might develop. Yeah, and speaking of difficulty, sort of as you're writing and finishing, finally Democrats are back in control and coming back to climate policy mm-hmm. and debating this, you know, the Build Back Better bill and then specifically the climate bill. And specifically during that exact time period you were finishing, Joe Manchin was yeah. <laughs> noodling around. Prevaricating, let's prevaricating say. Prevaricating <laughs> and noodling around and making everybody wait and wonder. And it was just wildly uncertain right up until the day he woke up on the right side of the yacht, I guess, or yeah. whatever happened. He, <laughs> but right up until that day, it was just wildly unclear what was going to happen. And it was a very big sort of historical pivot that yeah. was on the line. And it literally, that historical pivot took place during the years <laughs> yeah. covered by your book. So like, did this keep you awake at night, the, the course of actual events? Yeah. And I mean, in a way, when it passed, I was like both sobbing with relief and pissed at the Democrats. <laughs> I, like, you should have let this fail so my novel would make more sense. Like, that kind of... Uh, no, so actually, uh, what happened was I had fourth pass, like the last pass in my hands. A- at the moment, Joe Manchin was like, uh, I'm out on this bill. Like, it's not happening, right? Uh, so I send the book off to the publisher. You know, I, I'm, I'm listening to people like cry on podcasts about <laughs> our dark future. And then, you know, the bill passes. So what is going to be the case in the next edition, there are some key sentences that will be changed to reflect the reality of the Inflation Reduction Act passing. So this is just a way of me selling more books. You got to get this first edition <laughs> and then come back to the next edition and buy that one too. So, yeah. Yeah, that's wild. It just goes to the difficulty, like I said. I mean, you're, you're writing about things that are literally happening as you're writing them. But just to add to that, there was this sense, though, that like people who were paying attention understood the Democrats – 
would pass a mostly carrots package if they could get the chance. There wasn't going to be a price on carbon. There wasn't going to be any standards. It was going to be something where we were just going to toss as much money as possible at decarbonization. And so I think like having that in mind, I could at least sort of point the direction of what would happen in the Biden administration. Although I do think the language in the book is currently unfair to the enormity of that policy that got passed. (laughs) I actually had that thought. And then I remembered like, this is a novel. Um, So the other thing, you know, that you have to worry about in the real world is, of course, science and climate science. And this is, um, you know, this is something else that breaks my brain when I think about trying to do what you did, which is fictionalize it. Because, you know, if you are of an analytic mind, you follow climate science. Climate scientists, like all scientists, will say, here's the range of yeah. things that could happen, right? Uh, here are a set of error bars, a set of probabilities. And if you go to a scientist and say, well, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be a storm, you know, X big in 2029 yeah. uh, in August. They'll just be like, you're insane if you try to, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it, from a scientific point of view, it's crazy to try to say this particular thing will happen instead of that particular thing. So how much did you let kind of a a worry about scientific plausibility, you know, because the weather plays a huge, right. A huge role in the book. It's a big character throughout the book. There are very, very sorts of really key weather events. And how much did you let it worry you whether those particular events happening on that particular schedule were plausible to scientists? Like, did you do a lot of going back and forth with scientists? Yeah, I, I did. And I think like what I landed on is, I'm going to take the edge events as far as realism can, compo- you know, like to the end of the of the line of particularly with some stuff happening in Los Angeles and uh, a storm that comes towards the end of the book. I think for me, it was like, could this happen? Not is this probably right, going right. to happen at the same time? I, you know, you guys live in the Pacific Northwest. There was a heat event here a few years ago, and there was a quote by this guy who studied it at uh, Lawrence Livermore, I think, which was this event was impossible without climate change it also was impossible with climate change like it broke the model uh the heat storm in the pacific northwest in 21 and so i think like and correct me if i'm wrong we're continuously seeing is events outpacing the models that you know i find that particularly frightening so yeah and that gets to the difficulty of trying to pick a a particular course of events because even now we're being surprised and we're still in early early stages of all this Uh, The other big thing that gripped me throughout the novel, and it comes back and forth and up and down through the whole novel, the sort of the the novel insofar as it has a main character is centered on an activist who gets into, you know, first activism. There's a lot of activism working with politicians and trying to craft bills and create coalitions. And then there's a whole sort of other splinter of activism in the book, which goes very direct action. Andreas mom type. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, which goes way down that road of of direct action and, and, you know, bombing bulldozers and things like that. And it was interesting, you know, this is probably not the, how you should read a novel, but I'm trying to squint and sort of figure out, like, how does Stephen really feel right. about activism and the role of activism? And I think you did a great job of certainly not coming down with any sort of pat, like, right. pro or con, but sort of like there are key junctures in the book where activism – screws everything up mm-hmm. like legitimately screws up and forestalls the possibility of good things happening and then there are other you know sort of in the larger sweep of the book if you look at the whole thing like activism clearly played a big role so like what are your thoughts on the mom andreas mom question the sort of direct action 
at what point is violence against property justified? Mm-hmm. And then another question that comes up later, which is at what point is violence against people justified? Like, you know, it gets bad enough that that question is thrust on the activists. So I don't know if you have like yeah. a, where you come down on that. Well, I think it's important to know, like the job of the fiction writer. It's like, it's none of these characters can share my point of view, right? Like that is, that's the path to hell. That's the path to creating a character. That's just your mouthpiece. Right. <laughs> So every character, you have to be like deeply in their perspective and see the world through them. So I feel like the way the book should work is if Shane is the character you're referring to, when you're in Shane's sections, her point of view makes sense. These, these you know, mealy-mouthed activists at this, they, like, they're not getting anything done. We have to like go after pipelines, right? Then you switch over to this other set of people and they're thinking these people are fucking it up for us. They're creating a situation in which basically like we're going to get a Patriot act for environmental activists uh, and, and so forth. So I think just also the, the, all of those sections are about unintended consequences. And I think that's something incredibly important to pay attention to in terms of how the, the structure of the plot works. Whereas just because you want to do something doesn't mean the thing you're doing is going to pan out the way you think it will. Yeah. I mean, e- even at the end of the book, Looking back on it, there's still not a clear story to tell about right. like activism was the good guy or the bad guy in the story. You right. know, like in a sense, everybody is kind of fucking up all the time. Like <laughs> your your activists, your scientists, your politicians. Like I write realism, of, you know. That's the, <laughs> none of them really know what they're doing, and like none <laughs> of them, nothing works out the way any of them intend. I thought it. I thought you captured that effect well. Like there's no masterminds. Yeah, but I do think that there is. Um, or at least my sense of the question is that we are all trying to point ourselves in the direction of like, how do we change this? How do we fucking turn the ship at least a fifth of the degree here, fifth of the degree there. And so in the end, I think all of these characters are pointing to the way in which the ship was turned by those incremental degrees. And even if many things backfired and many things didn't work and, and the consequences were sometimes very scary or or horrific, it's like trying to look at the aggregate of, what has happened and how, how to change the situation. Yeah. It's like the aggregate that comes across. And even with the sort of benefit of hindsight, having finished the book, I'm still not sure I could go back and say to any one of the characters, like, this is definitely something you should have done, or this is something you shouldn't have done. It's not even clear, even in the context of the novel, what ends up actually causing things to happen. It's just sort of like things grind on around, which I thought is a very realistic as someone who's seen people, (laughs) cast themselves on the shore of these efforts over and over again and nothing work out and and lose hope. It's sort of, in a sense, it's hopeful. In a sense, it sort of gets at what's so frustrating about all this. Right. Frustrating. There's no A to B causation. Yeah, no, absolutely. So the third sort of theme of the book that felt like it was written just for me, (laughs) stuff I think about constantly is um, the role played by sort of far-right reactionary backlash. And I was so glad to find that in the book. I, You know, there's a lot I can't predict, but yeah. <laughs> the one thing I feel pretty sure about is that insofar as efforts to deal with climate change get some muscle or yeah. some, some seriousness – there's going to be equal and opposite reaction worse than what we're already seeing. Speaking, of, th- speaking of things being ahead of our schedule. So how do you think about it? I mean, do you think that's inevitable? A hundred percent. Yeah. I think, you know, death taxes and reactionary backlash are the only things we can be certain of. Um, one of the things that has bothered me sometimes about 
Well, anything you watch on TV with politics, anything you read, any fictional setting is the depoliticized nature of it. Like that's incredibly irritating because we live in an incredibly politicized environment. So my, my only goal with the book was to sort of, you know, not to write it from, you know, the guy who voted for Bernie Sanders, than Joe Biden's perspective. Like this is not like, again, my mouthpiece. It's like, how can politics develop, surprise us? How can they swing around in ways that, you know, we don't see coming now, but might happen in the future? And so there's, you know, a character, a Republican president who wants to do something about climate change. There's a Democrat who behaves like a monster. There's all that stuff sort of in the way our politics now continues to shock us, like making sure to keep the reader off balance. Right. Yeah. I got to say that that Republican president doing something good on climate change. (laughs) I knew you would hate that. I was actually... Even as I was writing it in like 2015, reading David on Vox, I was like, I know he's not going to like this when he finally interviews me in Seattle. The... That was the one time where my eyebrow went up. I was like, yeah. and then, of course, like everything falls apart on her. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, you see, you see what sense. I was doing. Yeah. yeah, everything falls apart after all. Another big question uh, I'm hitting you with all the big themes here is. Um, and, you know, again, like maybe you try to keep your point of view out of it and just put a lot of things in people's mouths. But. The net effect of the book is a critique of capitalism, basically, is is this, this idea that, like, climate is not a isolated, unique technical problem. It's, it is an outgrowth of uh, the basic way our socioeconomic system works. Is that your... Is that is that you? How much is that, of that is you, and how much of that is activists? And uh, I think, like, if I had to, let, you know, distill my like critique of the world into yes, like a few sentences, view. yeah, that, that would be somewhat difficult. Um, but you know, I I think what climate represents is it, it's not just a crisis of oh, you know, we're doing this or doing that wrong. It's like there's a lot wrong with our system that we do recognize, right? And so, as you often say. The point of solving the climate crisis is not just so we can fly around on private jets and keep the world as this inequitable and this, you know, uh, this miserable. It's, it's the solutions to the climate crisis point the way forward into actually changing the world for the better in many, many ways. And I think like and what I think your podcast does so well is explicate that. Um, I'm going to use this little moment to talk about this guy. Just because I no, I, you have to suffer through it. You just have to have <laughs> to turn off his mic. It. No, because I started reading David before I even started the book when he was at Grist, and I just like he was one of the first climate writers I encountered who had such a clear-eyed view of the issue and like sort of left the moralizing elements of it, you know, to the side. And since then, I'm like basically a David Roberts completist. Like I've been reading him. <laughs> You know, the entire time, even when he went to Vox for the down years, that's the, <laughs> this is very embarrassing. Uh, no, but uh, anyway, you should check out Volts if you haven't. Uh, it's an incredible podcast. When he brings on people who talk about how we solve this, it's like one of the few moments in my day when I'm like, OK, there are a lot of smart, passionate and incredibly just intelligent people working on every element of this problem. And I think that's something to keep in mind when we talk about this really scary thing. Yeah, it's it's actually <laughs> – one of the things you didn't get into um, that I wondered about was the role – like one story people tell now about how this is all going to play out is that clean energy is getting cheap really fast yeah. and, and um, the markets – you know, it, people are going to start opting for these things for market reasons and basically like the cleverness of innovators and entrepreneurs are going to turn markets for us and save us – from ourselves there was very little in the of that in the book i take it you just don't credit that 
that is no that's not quite the case i think like when i had the whole experience of writing it that was not happening yet or it was happening but it was like slower it's really turned up in the last few years yeah 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 and so for me, it was just like you, the, no introducing, you know, geothermal energy that suddenly solves all our problems. Like I couldn't like slip that in and pretend like this is going to let, be the solution, even though who the fuck knows? Maybe it will. Who knows? Right. So I just think like that was an element of the book that sort of I, I was not eager to shove into it. At the same time, I have become more excited about the possibility that, you know, stupid capitalism is actually on our side <laughs> suddenly. And at the same time, I, I do feel like these incumbent industries, uh, fossil fuels, are going to put up a way more voracious fight than a lot of people are thinking about right now. Yeah, yeah. One of the striking things about your book is they don't quit. Like, yeah, <laughs> like they're a whole like the eastern seaboard basically gets flooded, and, and they still don't. They still don't quit. I mean, look, they're going around. I listened to that, that podcast with what uh, the gentleman who was talking about. Um, you know, they're going around to a bunch of communities trying to gin up resistance to clean energy that will benefit those communities. And they're just really good at it. Yeah, they are. They are good at it. So um, I want to get to uh, audience questions before too awful long. But, you know, speaking of this kind of gets back to the capitalism thing, sort of at the end, I just, if we can do this without spoilers, there's yeah. a you could have very easily, I think, and very plausibly ended this with sort of everything falling apart and everyone dying <laughs> and, you know, just sort of like dissolution on the horizon as yeah. far as you look. And that would have been 100% defensible. So how much did you, <laughs> you know, this is like the most cliche question in the world, but like, I can't wait. like how much did you worry about, do I want people to throw themselves out of a window after I read this book or like, yeah. to what extent do I need a happy ending insofar as you can call a story where, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are dying and getting driven out of their homes and, and, and well, migrating and you know, whatever else happy, but. Right, but we're we're in this very bizarre situation now where we're talking about stopping the heating of the planet at two degrees is the happy ending, which seems <laughs> insane. And so I, I guess like the book, without spoiling anything, the book lands on a knife's edge, right? Like it's pretty much exactly what we're looking at right now, which is we have every tool we need to rapidly decarbonize the global economy. We could be going much faster. Like some of the terrifying results are already baked in because we waited too long. And it's going to be, you know, the fight of several generations to turn this thing around. And I just think like the book ends as really that effort has gotten underway and at the scale that it actually needs to affect the correct change. So, Yeah, it takes quite a few uh, body blows <laughs> before that comes around. Another thing I really appreciated in the book, I, I felt this about Don't Look Up to the movie. Yeah. Uh, the, Anytime you tell me a work of fiction is about climate change, I go in pre-grimacing and just like <laughs> sure. do a completely tense. <laughs> me <up>. too. <laughs> completely tense up watching for, you know, it's like a doctor watching ER or whatever. Like you catch all the little <laughs> things. But one thing I was glad you didn't do is this notion that like once a disaster is big enough, right? Once there's a spectacular headlining grabbing enough disaster, yeah. it's like a shock. And then everybody's like oh, you're right, we do need to do something about this. And everybody swings around and gets supportive. Yeah. Yeah. And as you show or in the book, you know, show rather than tell, which I appreciate it, it's, <laughs> it causes some people to do that, but it causes just as other, many other people react to trauma with 
fear and nativism and, and nationalism and, yeah. and, and and anger. One of the, I think the most important thread in the book is, you know, there's a, uh, one of the sections is called feedbacks and, you know, feedbacks, we all know what climate feedbacks are, but like the most important feedback is, is us as humans is what are we going to do? And unfortunately, one of those feedbacks is the worse things get, the more of that starts to come out. <laughs> um, and it's, it's just even more reason to arrest this as quickly as possible. Um, because, those effects will accrue that kind of resentment, nativism, hostility. It's, it's so inevitable. And so I think like making sure that was ever present in the book was, was sort of a key thematic aim. Yeah, there's a president who runs on, you know, this is something I've had in my head for a long time, a president who runs on like, we need to put up big walls to keep all these migrants out and we need to hoard our fossil fuels and yeah. dig up all our fossil fuels. So Carbon we, maximalism is right, the name of so the book. We, so we have an island here, a walled island, and we're protected from the rest of the world going to hell. And of course it doesn't and can't work, but 100% plausible that someone... 2024 will probably bring about that candidate, so... <laughs> yeah, you got to wonder. I, <laughs> You're shaking your head, but you know... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, I want to hear from y'all. So if anyone has questions, please... Yeah. The question was, how far out into the future does the novel go? It, it ends in the 2040s. So it starts in our recent recognizable past, 2013. So we get like a taste of where we've all been and then ends in the 2040s. Yeah, it really is like present day you're familiar with marching right forward to your tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. It's uh it's very disturbing in that way how how smoothly it goes from a very familiar situation to you know things going fucked up and sideways and all all kinds of ways. Yeah. So the question is about this perpetual argument in the climate space over individual action and individual responsibility versus structural infrastructural political changes and you know as a godlike narrator you get to choose yeah. <laughs> which which of those works more in the end did you have that in your head as you were writing yeah there, there's no point in the book when flight shaming solves anything <laughs> that's actually now i i probably and, and, but plastic recycling though, yeah whatever. yeah right <laughs> i'm sure we share this sense which is uh very quickly into like my very basic intellectual encounter with the climate crisis even back in you know, when I was in college was like, oh, this all this stuff is like mostly virtue signaling garbage. Um, and I'm not that's not to say like uh, people should live their lives as ethically as they can and they want to. Like, I don't want to like denigrate anybody who does that stuff. It's just that like chirping about it doesn't help anything. Um, we like we really, really need to accrue political power and change things at system levels, as David often says. It's the most vital thing. So. But what about a twi just a slight twist yeah. on that question, which is rather than personal action in the, you know, buy a hemp tote bag, uh, drive a Prius. Type How to of, green your Netflix binge. <laughs> <laughs> that type of thing. What about personal responsibility for activism and political engagement? I love that. And I wish <laughs> that was uh, what do they have memes now? I wish that was a meme <laughs> somewhere on the TikTok. Called memes. Yeah. Anyone in the audience? <laughs> Because it is. And it just, you know, I was reading Hal Harvey's book, The Big Fix, which I very much recommend, uh, which is about this topic. And there's a story in Montgomery County, Maryland, where a bunch of high school students were agitating about their disgusting diesel fueled buses. And uh, it led to the county electrifying the bus fleet. And that seems like a small thing. But if you start multiplying that across school districts around the country, it's not a small thing. And it 
dovetails with the strategy that has emerged, which is electrify everything and crush demand for fossil fuels. Um, so I think those are the sort of actions we have to look towards, and particularly cities like Seattle and L.A. and, and all these other sort of like liberal like bastions can go a long way in implementing policy. And nobody pays attention to any of this. So like a little bit of action goes such a long way. <laughs> hey, back there. If you are in a situation... The question was, if you in a dark alley sometime <laughs> come face to face with a climate denier, uh, is there anything in particular, any strategy or fact or emotional valence that you have found useful in moving such people? Yeah. So what I like to do is get super upset uh, <laughs> and really like dive into all my facts and just present them in a logical way and get angrier and angrier <laughs> as the conversation progresses. Don't forget footnotes. Always. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, ha I pull up on my phone articles from the New York Times and I'm like, wait, look. Paul Krugman says this, so and that works every time, and it's all fine. I think, like, I, uh, you know, you don't have to say, it's like, look at the Exxon documents from the 1970s. Like, they knew. Their scientists were out studying this. They said the world was going to go to hell if they kept doing what they were doing. So you don't have to take my opinion for it. You can go look at what Chevron had to say. But no, to seriously answer your question, though, I do think, like, the tech has suddenly become this very interesting tool, which is, like, Anybody who has an electric heat pump, my dad won't shut the fuck up about his electric heat pump. <laughs> Not that he's a climate denier, but it's like it. they should put warnings on that, on electric heat pumps, <laughs> that say, like, your dad might talk about this for a year. I know. Warning to your neighbors. Yeah. Do not engage so, on and, the heat pump. Exactly. So, I mean, there, there are these ways of just saying, like, you should at least try this thing out uh, that I think, like – once people start experiencing this very better way of producing heat and energy, it, it will not move the needle on denialism, but it will at least, you know, eh, like maybe a little crack or a fissure here or a fissure there. You know? Yeah. If I could just add like, you know, I've been at this since early 2000s or whatever. And, you know, in the, in the early 2000s, there weren't a lot of people who cared one way or the other. So it was mostly like a tiny handful of us who cared and a tiny handful of jackass <laughs> deniers who were paid to to disagree and i spent several years going back and forth with them and quickly realized a couple of things one is if you find people who are invested in denying they're usually that way ideologically and and you will not change their mind and the right uh, strategy is to turn around and walk in the other direction as fast as possible the vastly larger problem is poorly you know informed and mildly disengaged like the vast bulk of people just don't know that much and, and don't care that much and and how to get them involved is a much much bigger and more important question than how to turn around some jerk off uh So the question was, uh, what was most helpful to you in your research about how to address the problem? And I guess that concludes – because there is just – for you who have not read it, there's – to my great delight, there are some pretty weedsy discussions of policy. Like there are rooms full of people discussing policy yeah. in some detail, which is you know just totally my thing. So uh, what, what – again, not allowed to mention me. What sources yeah. did, you, did you find helpful? Uh I just mentioned The Big Fix, which was written by this guy, Hal Harvey. He's been on – I discovered him through David's writing. Um, but he works at Energy Innovation, which is his think tank. They were advising Congress on the IRA. 
And I just like, I was so grateful. I, a person who works there read the book for me and sort of like advised me on, on everything. And just like, I'm just so relieved that there are people who are like, all right, what is step A? Let's do step A. And then we'll move to step B. And then we'll go to C. And, you know, it's just that sort of level of thinking of like, what are the things in society driving this crisis? How do we change them? Right. I would be remiss also if I didn't recommend a book by my good friend Lisa Wells, who is here, called Believers. Uh, it is a terrific nonfiction fan, book. Fan. I read it in the midst of writing of writing The Deluge. And it's like one of those uh, books that sort of like made me feel what I'm supposed to feel right now in the midst of this. Uh, and I think that's, uh, as we were saying, like, that's a difficult thing to do. Like all of this just sort of exists in this haze. And every once in a while, there's a weather event that freaks us out. But then we all go back to normal. And even those of us who care about it have a hard time sort of holding on to it. So I very much appreciated those books that I read that was like, no, 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 this is keep your eye trained on this. And of course, to add, fiction is one of the things that can do that in a way that that no nonfiction can. And sort of like reading about, you know, this scientist who's been discussing these very sort of cold, wonky things the whole book careening through a burning Los Angeles to try to save his, his daughter from her apartment it really makes things visceral for you. Uh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so the question is about um, why there was so little climate fiction or art yeah. for so long, and now it seems like it's kind of bubbling up now. There's a couple of big things popping out, really big, a- ambitious works. And whether you have any thoughts on why that's happening. And, I, and, I, and I'll say, like, whenever I say on Twitter or whatever, oh, there's not enough climate art, people start throwing yeah. obscure <laughs> climate art at me and, and, and obscure climate novels. But, you know, in terms of, like, big popular culture stuff, really this book is the first – because, you know, you'll get lots of books that are, like, dystopic and you're like, yeah. oh, it's like, an anal- it's like an analogy to climate yeah, change. Yeah, like climate exactly. change hovers in the background yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is about climate change more squarely than any uh, work of art I've ever met. So, so what do you make of that? I think it's bizarre as well. Uh, and it's sort of in the course of writing this book, I was somewhat terrified that someone would come along and preempt me with, like, the same thing, basically. Um, and it never really happened. And I don't know, like, I, I might get in trouble for this, but I'll just take you through this story. I, I mean, I work in Hollywood now. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you saw my picture with Tom Hanks. It's up on Instagram. Okay. Uh, but, you know, we went out with the deluge early to see if we could gin up interest in an option. And I just got the same question in every meeting, right? Which was basically to the effect of like, well, what about the people who don't believe in climate? Like, I believe in climate change, but what about the people who don't? Where, what's in this for them? And I always found that like the most bizarre, mind-blowing thing because it, when when you're in it, you're like, this is the most f- important fucking thing to ever happen to humans, like let alone – Yeah, like somebody proposing a pandemic movie. Like what about <laughs> yeah, I don't right. believe in pandemics. <laughs> right. So to me, there is this this weird still – and this this is a testament to the power of the propaganda laid out by the fossil fuel industry – there is still in the U.S. especially this sort of idea that it is this highly politicized issue, which it is, but, you know, in a way that you can't even make art about it because it will, it will prickle people. At least that's the, my Hollywood opinion. As for fiction, I think there are quite a few climate novels, but I think they do exactly what you're talking about a lot of the time, which is they're not addressing the issue. They're coming at it from, you know, allegory or, right. you know, whatever else it might be. And the, the project of the deluge was like, okay, 
like straight to the fucking eye. Let's do this. <laughs> like, let's get every issue in this complex subject on the table. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if you want an explanation for why there hasn't been, I just think because it's super fucking hard. Like climate is everything. You know, it is literally everything. It's every physical system, every political system, it's like social system, yeah. it's emotional, it's, you know, it's, it's allegorical, it's everything. So it's one thing to understand that intellectually, but fiction is all about specificity. That's what I was trying to get at in my first question, like taking all that and deciding this specific thing is just mind blowing to me. And I, I understand entirely why people haven't done it. <laughs> it sounds really hard. I'm still waiting for the first good climate movie. I don't know. Like, don't well, look up. Did the sort of like analogy yeah, thing? The yeah. I mean, I listened to the podcast with um, what's his face, Adam McKay. Sorry, McKay. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, I almost <laughs> he, forgot. I hope he's listening to that right now. And uh, yeah, <laughs> famed uh, Academy Award winning director yeah, right? Adam, Adam McKay. <laughs> I expect in coming years there will be more attempts yeah. at this. I mean, sort of hope that you know you did the sort of needful, which is like directly <laughs> grappling with the horns but there's ways to get at this through genre yeah. through you know you could do a horror you could do a heist movie like you can think of lots of different ways you can weave you could weave climate change in like that's what i'd like to see is not necessarily just a ton of stuff directly about climate change but just more ambient climate change in culture just sort of more of an acknowledgement that it's whatever story you're telling and whatever you're doing it's there. It's it's around so, you. So, David, you're telling me you have not watched the film Hurricane Heist because that... <laughs> I have, actually. Uh, yeah, see? I mean, I, what are you talking about? This is a classic. Yeah. I right. thought that movie was so terrible that no one, literally no one else in the world would watch it. I'm glad you have the same appetite for, yeah, for yeah. terrible movies. Uh, anybody else? Yeah, go ahead. But did you sell the option? No. It's still available, Adam McKay. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Academy Award winning director Adam McKay. <laughs> Uh, yeah. yeah, back there. <laughs> was so the question is, was it cathartic to write this for a decade, or did you find it uh, innervating to wallow in uh, apocalypse? Yeah, I mean, I definitely thought it was emotionally exhausting, um, and especially about at the at the sixty percent mark, or maybe the seventy percent mark, when I had sort of set in motion the wheels of all these like multifaceted crises happening at once. And I just like, it felt too real to myself um, <laughs> for me really like the point when I had like had to shift my own thinking on it was when I started to explore like, okay, who are the people out there actually trying to do something about this? Not setting their hair on fire, not bemoaning humans as a virus on the planet, but just like what systems do we have to change in order to do this? That's when I started to get like orient myself a little bit more productively towards the task at hand. Then it was being edited in like the middle of 2020 during the pandemic, during the riot at the Capitol, like all that shit that just seemed like, okay, <laughs> my book is my, it's like not scary enough, you know? So yeah. What about the right? What about January 6th? That happens during the time period of the, of the book, right? It's, did it make I, it in well, there? Without any spoilers, uh, you know, the way I found out about January 6th was my friend and early reader texted me and said, how does it feel to be clairvoyant? And I did not enjoy turning on the television <laughs> to find out what he meant. So. We'll leave it at that. You have to read the book. Yeah, go ahead. 
When will there be an audiobook, it, and are you going to be involved in it? Uh, it is available right now, and I am not reading any of it, so you can listen to better people than me. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, go ahead. Mm. Do you get into the role of animal agriculture in climate change in the book? A bit through uh, one of the most vociferous characters who's a vegan and sort of forces her partner to become one, um, <laughs> as most vegans do. Uh, and, uh, and, and also... <laughs> Hello, there they are. <laughs> oh, wow, it's like that, uh, that's spot on or something. Um, but but also there's there's this this moment at the end when uh, when basically a character is laying out okay like what do we do and agricultural policy of course plays a role in that yeah yeah and am I dreaming but like people aren't eating beef by the end of the book for some reason am I am I making that up it, it wasn't like a policy or anything just like all the cows died or it's, it's, I may be making stuff up at this point I, I, yeah it's basically like the the U S government goes around buying up livestock and then basically shutters the the industry I think is what you're yeah. yes yeah. yes that happened so yes and and that's something quite quite dramatic you, on that it, but then you need to precipitate a crisis like in the book and I think we need to avoid that so yeah. that's yeah um so there was one yeah. So this is a question about writing process, and it is um, it is a big, sprawling book. It's got lots of characters in it, and the question is sort of how many is enough? How many is too many? How, how do you know when you're representing everything you want to represent? Yeah. You know, what, what's the thinking there? Have you read Ohio? Okay, yeah. So with Ohio, it's like I had the four characters the whole time and knew exactly, like, you know, who everybody was with this. I probably started off with 10 or 11 point of view characters. And as the book progressed, it became clear, like you're biting off way more than you can chew. <laughs> uh, and so they began to drop away. And I think in the, in like the last edit, basically between me and my editor, I cut one more and I, you know, it, it was hard because when Do you, you know put, how many you ended up with, I mean, it's, you... it's about it's seven basically, but it, it's like when you, when you have to cut out a whole character, it hurts. It's like <laughs> chopping off your arm, right? And so I think like that last hurdle of getting rid of, but you know, the book had to move. It had to be, and I think it is like very readable, very page turnery. And I think that was something my editor and I discussed that was vital, that a book this size with this much policy and science and, I, and so many ideas packed into it, it really had to be aggressively interesting. And so a, a few of the characters who I thought were vital, it turns out they kind of weren't. And once you've cut it, once you once it's gone, you don't miss your arm anymore. You know, no phantom pains. No phantom pains. Yeah, yeah. I, I just I just want to say, like, for those of you who have read Kim Stanley Robinson, um, ministry, right, Ministry for the Future. <laughs> I always want to say Swiss Family Robinson. I don't know. Once I say Kim <laughs> Stanley such Robinson, a different uh, title. I'm like, that's not it. Uh, ministry for the Future. Uh, ministry for the Future is a very like. It says fiction on the cover, but it's like a little bit of fiction. With a lot of like white papers uh, <laughs> sprinkled throughout, it's very which is which is like great if you just want to learn, you'll learn a lot by reading it. But just to be clear, this is not that. This is an actual novel, an actual page turner of a novel, and not just a bunch of learning, a bunch of briefs. <laughs> yeah, David Roberts, fuck learning. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah uh, enough with this learning. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. For Thank you so much for awesome. coming out. I really appreciate it. Thank you, David. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free. 
powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.